the other thing that I want for myself is figuring out the algorithm because <laughs> changes so much. If there was a tool they would analyze daily and like the, today, 7 a.m. Pacific works on LinkedIn kind of thing and schedule our, my posts automatically, I would get it no matter what the price is. Today's successful revenue leaders once started their careers just like you and I. They faced the challenges that their careers brought to them, they rose to the occasion and became the leaders that we admire today. Join me as we explore the skills and stories that make a great leader with a pinch of vulnerability. Hello and welcome to Sales Therapy. I'm your host, Alper Yurder. Grab a chair. This is your exclusive invitation to the therapy room as leaders are going to be sharing their career-defining moments, their secret tips and tricks in their arsenal towards success. And I promise we'll always end on a positive note. All right. So today in the therapy chair, we have Emir Atle, who is the co-founder and CEO of um, HockeyStack, a go-to-market analytics platform for B2B companies to analyze, forecast, and optimize their marketing. You might be seeing HockeyStack and their media platform all around uh, LinkedIn and all social channels. They are the talk of town lately, uh, very rightfully so. So we'll talk about that. And they also recently raised a round to enable their growth, which is really interesting in the middle of the sugar storm. So maybe we delve into that a little bit. Anybody looking to raise, maybe they can get some tips from Emir today. But we'll talk about his success, the joy, the pain and the journey. Welcome to CS Therapy, Emir. How are you feeling today? Thank you so much for having me on. I'm feeling great. This is still early in San Francisco, so it's my um, first call podcast, but I'm feeling great. How are Excellent. you? I'm, I'm doing great too. Actually, this is the end of my day. So you are the fourth of my podcast today, which I mean, I had some really amazing guests and I think I'm ending it on a very high note with you. So, so that's a good day for me. Thank you. Okay. My pleasure. So you said it's 10.13 San Fran? Is that correct? 9, 9 a.m. Ah, nine. Okay, okay, okay. So it's around 5 p.m. here on uh, in, in London. And on a Friday evening, we're recording this. So I think it's it's about time I go get a drink, but I'll do my best to stay <laughs> through the end of the podcast today. So I mean, generally, I love understanding uh, a little bit my guest. Uh, obviously, I gave a brief intro, but did I miss anything major there? Do you want to do your own intro? For our viewers, our audience? Um, yeah, it was a pretty good intro. I am one of the co-founders and CR of HockeyStack, a GTMLX platform for B2B. I was born and raised in Turkey. Right now, I live in San Francisco with my co-founders and a few members of our team and scaling HockeyStack. Where, where, in, where in Turkey were you born and raised? Istanbul. Ah, you're okay. We're both Istanbulites here. Good, good, good. Excellent. Um, so I, I ask that, I, I'm glad that you delve into where you grow up. Because the good therapy starts with childhood and growing up memories first. We learn the person that you became uh, through the growing up experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Where, um, How was that growing up experience for you in Istanbul? Yeah, um, I think I had a great childhood from like when I was 10 years old. My parents asked me to come to the United States with them. They showed me all around East Coast. We visited a lot of top universities there because they always wanted me to study study here. Uh, for college and then from that time to now i always wanted to start my own company uh, because of my dad who kind of like inspired me and motivated me to do so mm. um yeah it was always my dream to start a company here and i was a really good student um, <laughs> because i knew 
that was what I had to do um, to get into a good college here. Um, and then I got into Williams, Williams College in the East Coast with 110% scholarship. Um, they covered my flights and everything else. Um, and then I moved to US that way. And then once we got some traction for Hockey Stack, um, we got a pre-seed investment. And then with that, I had to drop out to move to San Francisco. It was a part of the deal. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to San Francisco, about two months after that, we got into Y Combinator as the first company to enter the batch. Um, and then just things started happening after that. I love that. Yeah. We'll, and then, we'll hear about the magic right after that. But I want to, yeah. I don't want to skip to the YC just yet. I want to hold you a little bit in the childhood and I'm going to ask you about, was your dad also an entrepreneur? Yeah. Ah, okay. I was sensing yeah. that. So you kind of had that inspiration from, from the dad side. Yeah. He became an entrepreneur when he was like 30 in like late thirties. Uh, it was something that he regretted, I think. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to start earlier. Okay. So fresh out of uni, actually dropping uni, if I can understand correctly, you started hockey stack. Yeah. I dropped out of college, um, to scale hockey stack before during college and before college, we st- Build, we were building hockey stack. Uh, it wasn't like we didn't have any customers, but we were building, testing the th- things and just like trying to get customers without success. And then after that period, I think after like pivoting for a bunch of times, we'll land on a great idea, which is the tool right now, revenue attribution for B2B, especially B2B SaaS. And then with that, we started getting a few customers. I mean, like small customers, but we thought it was it was going to work. They were mm-hmm. like initial signs of it. And then with the pre-seed investment, we had to drop out. Okay. So in 10 years, when they make your movie, you'll have that classic founder story, I guess. <laughs> the classic college yeah. dropout. And <laughs> okay, fine. Fantastic. Um, so we started already talking about the, the YC journey. I mean, a lot of people um, always aspire to YC. How did that start for you? Did you just apply out of nowhere? Did you have some, did you know anybody? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, we got this angel investment from one of the partners by Combinator. Um, we met in Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were raising a seed round back then. So we were raising a like an average seed round. Um, we didn't really have any traction. We were still really, really small. And then we wanted to apply to Y Combinator. And then we applied and then got in. And then as we got into Y Combinator, we didn't do the seed round. Waited until summer. This is like last year, March, I think. Mm-hmm. So we had to wait until summer and then uh, we did YC and then raised a small extension round and then skipped Series A. Okay. How was all that raising experience for you, especially now that, you know, times are a little bit difficult? It was it was a different experience for us because we were like middle of, we were not a seed company. We were like a Series A company, but we were fresh out of YC. We had the most revenue in our YC batch and we want to, we didn't want to dilute so much. We didn't want mm-hmm. to give out of stock of shares to investors for this round, especially. So we raised the really like a higher valuation. I think it was a different experience than other YC, especially YC companies, because they usually just like built the MVP and got their first one, yeah. two customers and want to raise yeah. a seed round at like 15, 20 million. Um, and it's really easy for us. It was a little bit more difficult because they treat us as a YC company, but we were like further along than all of them. Um, so it was a little bit more difficult. I think it took two weeks longer than an average YC company, which is like usually like I think three weeks hours to five mm. weeks um, to complete your which is still really good. It was a really good experience and we, really, we got a lot of tier one investors and really good angels, which is helping a lot right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience. I love that. It's so funny like that, that, that advantage, then you had to combat the perception. We're not, you know, we're not just the yeah. um, young kids from the block. We're actually generating revenue. That's really good. And you said you were one of the first 
um, to enter the batch, right? Or if not the first? Yeah, I think first. Yeah, first or second. Why? Why do you think that is? Like, is it because of the problem you're solving? Is it the team? I mean, it must be a combination of things, but um, I think it was, it's mainly because if you check out any kind of like YC resources, the first couple of things that they're looking for is one, um, the relationship between co-founders. Two, if you want to do this for the next 10 years. And three, if you're building something that people want. Mm -hmm. I've known my co-founder in Siobura for seven years. We built a ton of things together and we have been best friends for the last seven years. Um, and we met I met with Arda four years ago, um, and we have been really good friends since then. So it was clear that we didn't meet like six months mm -hmm. ago to build Hockey Stack. Yeah. We have been yeah. together for a long time. Average co-founder relationship last four years. We were in year seven as best friends once we start building Hockey Stack. Uh, and then the second thing is it was clear that we want to build this for the next 10 years because even without traction, we continued building Hockey Stack for two years. Mm. We built like product analytics tool at the beginning for ourselves. It was our, our challenge with another startup that we were building. We built a web analytics product, the Google Analytics alternative for SMBs. We built a lot of stuff before it made it, it worked. So it's clear that we were going to build this for the next 10 years. And the other thing is um, once we were applying for YC, um, we didn't have any money to like spend on marketing or anything like that. But we had a few customers that really loved the product as mm -hmm. it is. And the product was a terrible product because we only had two engineers, no resources, but still people loved it. Um, so it was a really clear early sign that if we had the resources to build a really mm -hmm. good product, people would love it as well. So I think those three signs Really yeah, important. I like what you looked to in terms of it takes like like the next 10 years, it was clear that you could build together. That's really important because a lot of people jump to the startup story thinking in two, three years, they'll be the big shots. But, you know, this takes on average quite a long time. And in that time, it's a bit like a marriage, isn't it? That founder relationship has to be intact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every time that kind of like during the batch, during the, YC, during the YC batch, every time we were stressing out over something or like, I don't know, a customer, a big deal product churn, anything that we were stressing about, even though there was nothing or like we were sometimes stressing about the feature every time mm -hmm. we were dealing with something like that. Our partners were saying that we're asking, are you going to build this for the next 10 years? Mm -hmm. We're saying yes. And they were saying, yeah, then you can figure <laughs> out you still have time. It's a really good, a really big relief that you know that you're going to build this for the next 10 years. Yeah, that's, that's really lucky. Great. I read today, um, I think it was a sifted article that I read today from a founder friend here in London, um, the founder of Calda, Daniel Bocibi. Um He talks about um, founder therapy between co-founders. Like it's like ma marriage or marriage counseling, that sort of thing, because it can be a really intense relationship. You have to find the right people to, to, to jump on that. All yeah. right. Let's talk a little bit about, we, we keep saying hockey stack, hockey stack, but what is hockey stack in a nutshell without boring people with too much pitching? Can you explain to us what, what is it in a nutshell and why did you start doing it? Yeah, hockey stack um, in a nutshell connects all of your platforms. Think about the tools that you're using day to day in your marketing and sales tech stack. So your CRM, marketing automation platform, all of your app platforms, intent, G2, everything. Hockey stack integrates with all of them, cleans and enriches the data, centralizes it. And it allows marketing teams to understand what's working, what's not working, what, what has the highest ROI. Um, and then we sync that data to sales team so that they can reach out to their accounts that show intent. Um, and then we allow them to see the buyer journey so that they can customize their message. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, if you're mainly selling to marketing and sales teams in B2B mid-market enterprise uh, from like 
mid-market to some of the largest software companies today use hockey stack to make better decisions love that um so i think the marketing side is very intuitive but can you maybe explain like when you talk about the marketing use case versus the sales use case or if they're together like how do you explain it to those different roles the benefit they can get from the product yeah yeah sales is something that we have been working on for the last two months um and we are we have um our customers are using it for sales but we don't directly sell to sales right now but we will start end of q1 uh, for sales we have a really incredible data set because we can basically see the entire customer journey from the first impression to close one with all the marketing mm -hmm. and sales touch points. So once you start using HockeyStack, we get all the previous two years of data. With machine learning, we understand what is prompting buyers to you know, like contact sales or um, schedule a call or like move through the funnel. Mm -hmm. And then we use this data to score new accounts for SDRs. Um, even though there's no deal with an account, if we can see that there's a really high chance of booking the deal, We mm -hmm. sync the data back to SDRs with buyer journey highlights through Salesforce and HockeyStack. Um, that's the SDR use case. And we also have third-party intent as well as first-party intent kind of like to create that intent score. For mm -hmm. AEs, if you're working on 30, 35 deals, you can see all the buyer journey highlights, get notifications whenever an account that you're working on is on the website, checking out any resources or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can also see buyer journey highlights um, to customize your message on the accounts that you're working on. Okay. So if you say, for example, I am an HR tech founder or I am the, you know, CRO of an HR tech tool, series A, B, whatever. Um, how would that conversation between us happen? Like, so for example, if I'm trying to sell to enterprise companies, how could I use hockey stack in my, you know, works, work, workflow? Is it for sales? Um, could be both. Let's, Let's just say for the yeah, whole. Yeah, we usually sell to yeah, we usually sell to the marketing team, and then first month we set up everything. They get used to the platform. Second month, they start building their own kind of like reports, customized reports, use it in day to day life. And then third month, usually end of the first quarter, they want to they want their sales team to see the data as well. Mm -hmm. That's the usual pattern for all of our customers. Mm -hmm. And at that point, they want their sales team to see the key highlights in their buyer journey. And then we send properties back to Salesforce so that they can see those properties kind of like the Zekon has high intent, the Zekon has high engagement on LinkedIn ads, the Zekon has been checking pricing pages, kind of like those properties so that when they filter out companies or build account lists on Salesforce, they can use those properties. That's the first way. Second way, we have um, sales buyer journey highlights on HockeyStack so they can see all of their accounts one by one and then see the key highlights for the last day or last week. Um, to customize their message and see who is an active buyer and not. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last part is for account-based motions, especially on the enterprise side. We can see contact visiting the website, both identified and unidentified, and then see like the whole buyer committee with their actions and then all the intent signals from third-party and first-party sources for mm -hmm. them to like reach out, customize their messages mm -hmm. and prioritize I, I, accounts. I, I... I hear a lot of different features from different products in there. There's a bit of revenue intelligence. There's a bit of, I guess, um, I'm not sure what's the category of, but lead feeder, that sort of like analytics. There's elements of Flolo, which is like which content people engage with. So you, you're building like a holistic machine for anything that is intent data. So you can make better decisions, I guess, from what I understand. Yeah, so our, our approach was... And this is the first time that I'm talking about this, but like our approach was we saw a gap in the attribution space. Mm -hmm. But from the very first days, we knew that an attribution platform isn't the end goal. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but there's a really big gap. There still is a really big gap in the attribution space. Um, so we entered the space, shook things a little bit, um, scaled from zero to seven figures in, in a year, um, raised some capital to build further. And then our goal is to expand into sales and to feed the signals that we have into sales workflows. And then in a year, next year, maybe like towards the end of the next year, sell to the customer success teams as well with product right. insights. So we want to build that revenue um, decision-making center for the entire revenue team. Okay. Well, welcome to our already very crowded space. <laughs> so are we going to be competitors <laughs> at some point? That's great to hear on the show. So I have a few questions from all that conversation, which is really interesting. Actually, generally in the flow of the podcast, I go into your, you know, your success journey, your career journey a little bit more. But since we delve into these questions already, I have some specific questions from our users, which I generally connect in uh, collect in advance. And I want to shoot a few of them, like rapid fire questions, if you don't mind. And feel free to take any of sure. them, leave any of them, whatever. So the attribution problem, since you start talking about it, which is very real, all my you know decade of uh, sales leadership fights between sales and marketing, where it goes, blah, blah. Where do we stand in the attribution problem with, um, with companies today? Is there still a major problem and how are they fixing it? Um, so how HockeySack is fixing it? Yeah, how hockey stake is fixing it. I think we heard a little bit how hockey stake is fixing it, but in general, like what are people doing to when you ask them the question in your discovery, like what have you done before coming to hockey stake or etc.? Like what do they tell you to combat that attribution problem? Yeah, even the most kind of like biggest, most enterprise B two B software companies, they're still using Lost Touch or First Touch. Mm -hmm. So if the Lost Touch is an SDR email, the Alpine team is getting the entire credit. If the Lost Touch is a direct visit to the website marketing team gets the entire credit. So they're still using that model and or they're using Salesforce campaigns plus a Looker data studio and the Looker data studio is really hard to use. So it's not like a day-to-day -day thing. Mm -hmm. It's just used when there's a board meeting coming up. Um, they just like create a report, show it to the board and then no one takes action. How Akisak is fixing this problem is uh, we are tracking the entire buyer journey because there are hundreds of touch points. So if you're just yep. using last touch or first touch, you're going to make decisions based on the front data set. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have a really high user adoption because the tool is really easy to use and it's completely flexible. So you can build any type of report with our dashboard builder, which is unique to HockeyStack and the space. So any type of question that you want to ask, you can use HockeyStack to do it so that you're actually optimizing for the right things. Um, and the third thing is from the day we started, we have been telling that deals by definition can't have a source because a deal has I don't know, dozens of stakeholders, hundreds of touch points. So there's no source really. We allow customers to understand what is working, what's not working so that they can optimize with the same budget, do mm -hmm. more with less. Mm -hmm. you know, like everyone hates that, but do more with less. Um, and then within marketing and sales, we allow them to align around the same KPIs, same goals, same metrics, and same accounts, which is really important. What I've discovered by working with dozens of our customers is we sync data from Salesforce, so the accounts that sales has been outbounding and working on. Mm -hmm. There's a really big gap between those accounts and the accounts that marketing is advertising towards. So they are working on two separate account lists at the same time with two different budgets. There's like really low overlap between those accounts. So Akisak's other kind of like goal is to align those two teams around the same KPI, same metrics, and same accounts with a unified dashboard. Mm. So more in an all-bound motion and you work towards a common goal, yeah. like a revenue goal. Okay. I think that seems yeah. to be kind of the norm. I've been having these conversations, especially the last two, three weeks. A lot of people are, you know, 
somehow ditching the outbound, inbound, or the attribution um, discussions and just trying to align the whole team across a common goal. And, and at the end of the day, it's the revenue you bring in or not. So so that's that's really cool. Um, I have a question a little bit about maybe your yeah your preferences. as, as your, So now you're a CRO, but you're a CRO of a product or a company whose main audience, at least in the beginning, now you're going to sales, but it was marketing. So mm-hmm. within marketing, which areas of marketing, is it growth, is it content, is it um, outbound or whatever? Where do you see like the most gap or the most space for development? Like which of those things within marketing can be really improved to have a revenue impact? This is like if I wanted to build a new kind of like SaaS product where I would build Maybe. it in or very Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I think there's a really big gap. So I'm going to answer from our, like our perspective and then what yep. I see because I have done marketing for a hockey sack for a long time. From my perspective with a tool like hockey sack, and this is something that we are building right now. And I think with every single marketing product as well, most of the marketing products get the data, turn it into something new, and then ask marketers to analyze that and then make actions and make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really big gap between analyzing the data and turning into decisions because most marketers are afraid of the decisions that they're making because mm-hmm. they're they have a budget and they need to turn that budget into something big. So if they get $1 million, they need to turn it into $3 million. If you ask them to make a decision, they're afraid that it's not going to happen and they stick to the old playbook. They're saying like, we have been spending this much on LinkedIn. Should we, continue? we should continue spending that much on LinkedIn because it's like I'm not going to be punished for that. But if I make a decision, shift budget from LinkedIn to connect the TV, it doesn't work out. I'm <laughs> going to be punished. So I think the... From the analyzing to actioning piece, there's a really big gap. I, I'm still, we're still working towards it, but there's a really big gap for all the marketing mm. tools. So that, was, that would be something that I would be working on. Uh, another thing is, I think LinkedIn is still in the early days. Um, if you look at Facebook's journey, um, LinkedIn is probably what Facebook was like five years ago. So there's still a couple of years of development on the LinkedIn side. Then LinkedIn, like I think six months ago, six, seven months ago, reached a billion users. So it's still green space for a lot of creators, especially in B2B. I think we will see a lot of more SaaS products that will make it easier to create content on LinkedIn and track its influence. And then also the other thing that I want for myself is figuring out the algorithm because <laughs> it changes so much. If there was a tool that would analyze daily kind of like the, today, 7 a.m. Pacific works the best on LinkedIn kind of thing and schedule our, my posts automatically, I would get it no matter what the price is. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. figuring out the algorithm. I can't believe you said that. I think you've just given us the teaser for this <laughs> for this episode. I think <laughs> that's something that everybody wants to figure. But in terms of your go-to-market motion, as far as I have been following Hockey Stack from afar, uh, you brought in like a you know superstar he- head of content, and and you your content. I think a lot of people view it. Even before I met you, I I heard about the company. So how did that thinking shape? Like, wh- wh- why did you dwell on content so much? Where did that come from? And how are you evolving it? Yeah, it was something natural for, for us. When we first started, me and my co-founder, we thought like probably everyone in B2B spends time on LinkedIn. And this was like a year ago. And it, there were like still a lot of creators, but I think a lot less from what we see today. And we, we thought like if we can get people to see our content over time, they will want to know what we do and over time they will check out hockey sack mm-hmm. and once they check out if it's interesting they will book a demo so it's the same thing with email you send an email if people are interested they read the email if they're 
interested enough, they check out Hockey Stack. And if they're interested enough after that, they book a demo. So it's the same thing, but you're like on a social platform with content. And then we started testing it for four months. Me and my co-founder, we posted every day, like once 6 a.m. Pacific, once 12 a.m. 12 p.m. Pacific. Um, and then over like three or four months, we started seeing the early results and we got our first four customers from LinkedIn. And then it was a clear sign that if we can figure this out, it would work well. Um, and then after that, we kind of like developed, developed a content machine for LinkedIn um, and then turned it into a media company with the flow, uh, which is mm -hmm. our like Netflix style content page. It was something different. I really fell in love with LinkedIn and how you can actually kind of like network and make yep. people want to see your content. And then over time, it turned into something that if, if I don't post for two, three days, I was getting, I started getting messages about like what happened kind of thing. And it just really <laughs> made me feel like I'm actually, like actually people are actually reading your content. It's, it's mm -hmm. really, it's the best feeling in the world. Um, and then it turned into our best revenue stream. And then we scale it with, we built a good content team. Um, and then recently, we started to getting into the next level with research reports, Hockeystack Labs, um, our own templates, um, Hockeystack template library, kind of like getting into a product marketing thing. Um, if I'm going to be honest, the, the thing that we really failed at is we wanted to keep it at like 50% entertainment, 50% like product marketing. And then we just couldn't figure it out. Sometimes we do 100% product marketing. Everything is about product. Sometimes we mm -hmm. do 100% entertainment. Mm -hmm. This is something that we are still figuring it out. Figuring out. But I think we are getting better at it. So. Absolutely, you are. Um, and I feel very much on the very same journey as you. And I've, I think 200%, I agree with everything you said. Apart from the fact that I think LinkedIn is unfortunately lately with the algorithm becoming Facebook ever faster. Uh, I don't think it'll take it five years to be Facebook. And I say it in a negative way, meaning people just posting really boomer stories and <laughs> I can't put that with it and the algorithm punishing. Some, and I, I completely agree. And I was just next week, I'm going to be talking about LinkedIn and how to grow and exactly the things that you mentioned. And I'm writing about it, wrecking my brains about it. When I see like great research and data driven posts from the likes of you guys, I'm just driven to it. I mean, I, I, I want to read it. That's free research, which is of value. But there's so much dumb shit as well. Don't you think? Yeah. Um, my thinking process around that was, so I thought like the hardest to reach audiences, founders and C-suite and mm -hmm. VCs. Founders don't really have time to read anything or watch anything. If you post a video, founders are not going to watch it. C-suite, busier than ever. And VCs, they are smarter than everyone else. And they're really busy as well. So... I thought like, what, who, who are these people watching and like, what is the content that these people are consuming? And I made a list, Jason Lemkin, 20VC, um, Nathan Lutka and a few others. And I kind of saw the pattern in this content, um, that these people, the busiest people, smartest people in the world are actually taking time and watching and reading. And all of this is the unique content that you can never find anywhere else because they're doing something unique. For example, Jason Lemkin, because of his network and um, like the companies that he invested in and things like that, he can have people to share things that you would never hear anywhere else. For example, yeah. he has like boxes CEO sharing their revenue and then like what they did and then from the early days, what they did. Nathan Lemkin interviews founders and they'll ask them to share their revenue transparently on a 
podcasts and then mm-hmm. gets them to a database. And then these are the content types that you can, this is unique to them. So I thought like, what can we do that no one else can do? And then we have a really big data set from like dozens of companies that we work with from their CRM to marketing automation to how much they're spending on ads, how much they're getting out of it. Um, and I thought if we can turn this into content that people actually want to read and if you want to know what is this average CTR on LinkedIn so that you can compare for benchmarks, what is the, I don't know, January was really slow for a lot of companies and SaaS and if they want to know why or is it normal, they would go to Hockey Stack. Yeah. So I thought that we have a chance to become something unique yeah. so that people can actually take time out of their really yeah. busy day. And- Thank you for sharing so generally today on the on this on this chat because I think a lot of people are trying to crack these things and you just shared the formula, which is wonderful. And one more thing I'll add there: I think data-driven, fact-based storytelling is still the most powerful thing that I get dri- driven towards um, on LinkedIn. And if you kind of figure out a formula for doing that, even better with all that data that you have, it's a bit like fortune tellers or oracles of uh, ancient world, like. They get the data, they tell it to the people and people are just treating them as superstars. So if you do that with your content, then, you know, telling them about this, this insight about January, you know, if you're a marketer thinking like, oh, why is my January shit? And then you see this content from Hockey Stack, January is shit because it's shit for everybody. Then it's, it's a very strong proposition. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you don't need to have all those data points to make your content unique. I'm sure every company, every founder, every marketing team has something to share that no one else, or like even like a few people can share. Mm-hmm. Um, and the worst case scenario, very worst case scenario, if you can't find anything, there are a lot of third party data points that you can use and craft a unique story as well. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you need to know who you are writing for, like who's your audience properly and try to drill down on that, you know, and make sure that it's the, the again the ICP the persona problem like who are you writing for who are you trying to approach are they relevant etc cetera, etc cetera. one question yeah. i have for you um obviously these things started saas and tech and all these early adapters how do you see this trend spreading from tech to other industries like all these growth through content or you know linkedin do you see it happening for other industries as well <laughs> i think there's a small circle on linkedin yeah it's like talking about dementia and linkedin social and things like that but every day we have at least a dozen sales calls with mid-market enterprise companies and other than that circle no one is talking about dementia and no one is talking about linkedin social all the enterprise companies are still doing ebooks white papers and lead gen tactics and i don't think they will stop so I think I think now there's no really a change. A trend that I'm seeing is, especially on the enterprise side, they are saying kind of like they don't say dimension, but they want, what they are saying is they want to ungate content. They say mm. that we don't want to ask for emails to view our content, but they're afraid that they wouldn't be able to track the influence, so they come to us. Uh, but they don't really say dimension. But I think there are some early signs of like they're trying to see what else is out there, what else can they do. But I don't think there, there's like 0.1% of marketers in overall SaaS companies that are talking about dimension and LinkedIn social. So it's still very, very early days. I don't know what to do of that. Do you think it's a good thing that it's so small or is it a... I think, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I think there's a still a really green space. But the other thing is also sometimes I see founders and marketing leaders like directing everything towards LinkedIn social and dimension um, and like leaving everything behind. I think, again, same with our LinkedIn content that we discussed earlier, there needs to be a mix. I think you still need to be on traditional channels, do traditional tactics to reach the audience. 
and LinkedIn social and there's all this dimension tactics, growth tactics that I mentioned earlier, they're still attracting 10, 15% of the overall market, yeah. which is still valuable because yeah. not, may, not many people are doing it. So you have a chance and a good chance of reaching that 20, 15, 20% of the market. Uh, but for the 80%, especially if you're targeting enterprise, you still need to be on traditional channels. Which are? And offline events are huge. Mm -hmm. um, dinners, trade shows, even like booths at events. They're yeah. still huge if you're targeting enterprise. If they go to SaaS or B2B, MX, whatever, they are a vendor of theirs. They want to see their booth so that they know you're still doing good. You still have money to spend on that. Mm -hmm. It's not really like scanning badges and things like this. Like, yeah, I can still afford this booth kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, webinars. Yeah, webinars. A lot of our enterprise customers are still doing content syndication. I've never done it, so I don't know, but <laughs> everyone is doing it. But for me, it's um, offline events, more like smaller dinners, boots, being at events, like more offline things. I think yeah. are still the way to reach enterprise. Yeah. So you already mentioned like what other, other than content, how are you judging up your go-to-market motion? And I think that's going to be really powerful for people. We, every quarter, try to reevaluate what we're doing and starting. Okay, long story short, I'm going to ask you this question. Would you be able to say by investment level or something like that, which channel makes the most sense? If, if you were to start now as a founder, pre-seed, seed, series A, B of a B2B, startup where does it make sense for you to invest in is it content is it outreach is it events yeah what i would do is i would um start building an audience on linkedin share um posts every day and what we did earlier really really early days is we made a list of like 100 people and then we dm them one by one to kind of talk to them for 15 mm -hmm. 20 minutes ask for their advice kind of thing just like meeting people that really worked well so I would make that list. I would start posting on LinkedIn, engaging with people, meeting new people, and then start running LinkedIn ads with a small budget, maybe like I don't know, two, three K a month, because you can really target target the audience that you want on LinkedIn. Um, and then I would just do LinkedIn ads and LinkedIn social until I get, I would put a milestone and until I reach that milestone, I would do LinkedIn ads and LinkedIn social. Um, and after that milestone, I would get into Google ads and like branded keywords, competitor keywords, those are more expensive, but really high intent. And the most important thing there is if you're like, when you advertise on a compare name, you would, you shouldn't stop at advertising and letting people can like book them on your website. Mm -hmm. What we do is every time someone enters the website from a compare keyword, we reach out to the company. If you have company identified through like reverse IP, if you have the email, we reach out in like 10, 15 minutes. I ask my team to reach out within an hour if possible if not possible within a day, really like I saw that you were researching what visible architect does X, Y, Z, kind of like asking for that, calling them, everything. Um, so really squeezing the juice out of those yep. signals. Yeah. Um, and after Google, I don't know what the budget is, probably um, I would get into those like offline things that I mentioned earlier. So with probably like Google and Google, LinkedIn, and LinkedIn social. Any SaaS company with a good product can get in, get into kind of like know, a few millions in ARR. And after that, you probably have data to look at to see what makes sense. Yeah. Um, and after that, you can do I know, offline events, ABM, set up an outbound motion, whatever you want to do. But those mm -hmm. three would be enough okay. to get to a few millions. This, this, this episode has been so different from my usual flow, but it's also been like full of gems you've been throwing in the sense that like, I think we're going to make a million shorts from this conversation because it's so much practical. 
for people who are trying to achieve things. But I'm still going to end on a sales therapy note. I have one or two questions which are a bit more personal. The first one is, you're building HockeyStack in the US. Um, do you think yeah. every B2B SaaS business has to be built in the US? What are the pros and cons yes. of not building in the US? I think every SaaS company needs to be in San Francisco. <laughs> um, pros, like there are a ton. Yeah, clearly. Um, every single day you are surrounded by this community. It's like, for example, I'm in, I live in South Beach in San Francisco. If anyone knows San Francisco, um, it's close to Oracle Park. So whenever I leave my house, if I walk to the other street, Anderson Horowitz, Kleiner Perkins, Excel, yeah. Peter VC, everyone is on the same streets. So every single day when I'm getting my coffee, I'm surrounded by these like VCs. Figma's office is here, GitHub's office is here. I know all the SaaS companies are in San Francisco. So it's a really good mental, in a way it's a mental challenge too, because you're surrounded by these companies and you're reminded to be working all the time, yeah. which is a really good yeah. advantage. And then it's just, if you're in San Francisco, it's I think an unfair advantage because in my opinion, and shouldn't be the case, people, prospects, VCs, everyone kind of like, not like respects you more, but I think cares a lot more mm -hmm. um, when you're in San Francisco and New York, especially in those two cities. Um, this advantage is really expensive. Um, it's probably the biggest one. And the probably as a founder, there's not much going on in terms of, kind of like social life in San Francisco. Those are the big two disadvantages, but the advantages are huge. And also hiring market. It's worse than probably what it was two or three years ago, especially before COVID, but still the best engineers are in San Francisco. Um, and I am a really big believer in in-person work still. So if you want to have an engineering team in person with your tech lead or CTO, it's a really good city to be in. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Listening to you, me meeting you, Emre, is really interesting and fun. I mean, I'm an extrovert, so sometimes I struggle with people who come off as introverts. You're just dropping gold, but in a very direct way. You know, you're not sugarcoating any of it. <laughs> You're not cutting corners. You're just saying like the facts, the data, these are the things that you should have to do. And the funny thing is I'm going to have to tell my co-founder Adam to move to San Francisco because I'm not moving. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you not moving? Uh, I'm too old for it. I, I made that decision. I don't want to be living because my family is in uh, Turkey and my a lot of my, you know, all my relations are in Europe, etc. So I, for me, I worked in New York for, uh, for a year and uh, at Bain. This was in my consulting days. And it was, I was waking up in a different time zone where everyone else that I loved was sleeping or not there, you know? So that psychological distance for me was a bit hard to bear, which is why I never considered living in the US for a long time. Yeah, it's, um, that's true too. Um, all my family is in Turkey, but I'm, I'm moving them in six, seven months. So it's going to be oh, better. Wow. But the, yeah, from the time that I moved, it's probably one of the biggest challenges someone from Europe. It's a big challenge, especially mm -hmm. if you if you're loved ones. And and with New York, we have a three hour difference. So it's with Europe, we have an 11 hour time difference. Um, so it's a huge one. Uh, and it's a, another disadvantage, but probably for people that are from Europe, that's a big one that I miss. Yeah. But for me, if something increased my chance of success, even like 1%, and this is something that I've been telling, I'm managing our marketing and sales team at Akisak as Sierra. And this is something that I remind them every day. Even if something increases our chance by 1%, I'm willing to do it. Sometimes <laughs> Nate, our, um, <laughs> you know, 
someone from our sales team that I really love. Sometimes he is not afraid, but like he doesn't ask me for some things and he thinks they're really small things for like mm-hmm. our sales process, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, our live demo instance on our website and things like that. This is something that I say, I tell him every day, even if it increases our chances by 1%, I'm willing to spend time on it. And San Francisco is something like that for me. Shit, I should have started with this. Now you're opening up as we come to the end of the show. <laughs> I love it. But I, that means I have to have you as a guest again. This was a great chat, Emir. Thank you so much for dropping all those gold uh, nuggets for our listeners. I think there'll be lots of shorts coming from this conversation with very practical tips, but they will be in our media hub. Uh, maybe we will share. This time it will be in both of our media hubs. <laughs> sure. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great chat. My pleasure. Any closing remarks before I say my final, our final words? No. Start, start doing content on LinkedIn. Do everything to increase your chances. Move to San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Love that. Great. Now, Emir, our time is over and I need to cut it on the clock, just like any good therapist, which is a lie because we're clearly over time, but it will be an editing job now. Um, that's a wrap on this episode of Sales Therapy. If you enjoy the show, subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. I thank my dear guest, Emir, very much for this episode and we'll be joining um, you again in the next episode soon. Bye. Bye.